Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 2, not 5. But Isaiah chapter 2, I'm not going to make you stand as long this week. I'm just going to read it, and then I'll let you sit down. Isaiah chapter 2 is this passage we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. This is week 3. Actually, next week we're going to look at Isaiah 2, but verse 12. So through the week to come, you might read this whole chapter and just have in mind what... um, what is coming next week. But what we want to look at, especially this morning, is verses 2 and 3 from this passage that we've looked at these last couple of weeks. So hear the word of God, Isaiah 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations And he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Again, Father, we thank you for your word, but we recognize that we need more than your word. Uh, We need your spirit. We need your spirit to come and open our eyes and open our hearts, convince us if we need to be convinced that this is the word of God. Apply this word to our hearts where there is unbelief or doubt or disobedience or confusion. Encourage our hearts if our hearts need to be encouraged. Lord, only your spirit can do these things, but you, Holy Spirit of God, do this in connection with this word that you first inspired and in the good providence of God has been preserved for us. So come, Holy Spirit, and use your word in our hearts this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We uh, looked at three things, so f- or two things so far. We looked at this first verse where um, Isaiah sees the word. He sees the word. He doesn't just hear the word, but he sees the word. You remember back in the early 90s, you, you could see in, in bookstores or gift shops or something like that, you could see these, these computer-generated graphic things that just, that, that looked like black lines and, and, and different figures and that kind of thing. And, and you wonder what, and it was a kind of a poster size thing. And you, you think, what is this? I mean, what is this thing? And, and then the owner of the shop would, would say, I see you're interested in this poster. Yeah, but what is it? Well, look more closely. Keep looking. Do you remember these things? 
Keep looking. It's called the magic eye. Keep looking. And then it would happen, wouldn't it? Magical. Suddenly there are dolphins that are swimming out of the wall towards you. You remember those things? I, I said to Glenn and Zach this morning, you know, you think you're doing yourself a favor by taking three weeks to, pe- to preach through a passage, by going more slowly. The problem is you just see more dolphins. You just see more dolphins. There's just more stuff coming out of it at you, you know, and, and that's instructive. And that's what we said, you know, that. The word of God is black words on a white page, but God, the Holy Spirit, does something with this word. And our our hearts, you know, as we sit here this morning, our hearts need for the Holy Spirit to do this thing. And I hope you're praying, even as you listen, that you will hear something more than my voice, that you will see something more than black words on a white page, that God will cause this thing to be electric, just as he did for Isaiah. Isaiah saw the word. And what is at the heart of the Christian life is seeing things that can't be seen, right? Seeing things that only God by his spirit, as he works mightily to cause blind eyes to see. Only God can cause us to see these things. Now I could stop right there and for the next 30 minutes, I got to preach a sermon on that and, and just, just suggest that if, if, if this is so much gibberish, if you're not seeing and hearing the things that, that we're talking about and alluding to, if you're not experiencing the very thing that Isaiah experienced, my encouragement to you is that you pray, that you plead with God, that you call upon him to give you eyes to see. He's the only one who can do it. I can't do it. You can't do it to yourself. Isaiah saw something. Saw something that you can't see with the physical eye, but you see with the eye of faith. And what he saw was this whole unfolding of the purpose of God across all of the days of human history. And we've said that he's like, he's like a little kid peering through a, a keyhole into a room. This is a little peephole through which we peer into the whole unfolding of human history. And he refers in verse 2 to these latter days. What are the latter days? Well, they're the days farthest removed from where Isaiah is. They're the last days. They're the end days. And the end days are followed by the final day, the last day, the day of the Lord. That's what verse 12 tells us. The Lord himself has a day, and all of history is moving in the direction of that day. But but what precedes that day is the last days, the latter days. And the question, of course, is when did they come, or have they yet come, or are they... Well, if you read the New Testament, the New Testament tells us that with the coming of Jesus, the latter days came. Hebrews 1, 2. This is the Bible. This is the Bible. In the past, God spoke to us at many times and in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Jesus brings the last days. Paul uses a similar phrase, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. These things happened to them, happened to Israel. He's referring to Israel in the wilderness during the Exodus. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for us for our instruction 
upon whom the end of the ages has come. Who? The Corinthians in 55 AD. So you ask, where are we in human history? If you think back to the analogy, the image that I used at the end of the sermon last week, we're in the Rocky Mountains. We're in the Rocky Mountains. We're in the last days. We have been since Jesus came to inaugurate them. And these last days, the farthest removed from where Isaiah was, will lead to this last and greatest day. And then what's on the other side of that last and greatest day is the new heaven and the new earth. Eternity. Everything you long for. And I could hit the pause button again and preach a sermon right now for the next 20 minutes about that. Where are we? We're in the mountains. We've come up out of Kansas. Remember, we start in Vero Beach. We have this long trek across Florida and then the southeast and then the Midwest and then the Great Plains. And you come up out of Kansas and you hit the high plateaus of eastern Colorado. And off in the distance, you see the mountains and you say, ah, we're almost there. But there's a long way to go between the front range and the back range. And folks, we're in the mountains. We're in the mountains. We're in the latter days, waiting for the great day. Longing for, praying for that last day. Now, again, if you've got a question about that, call me. We'll have lunch. We'll talk. I'll explain it, help you to understand it. What's going on in those latter days? Well, what's going on in those latter days, in these days that Isaiah is referring to, is what is happening in verses 2 and 3. What's going to happen in those latter days? Look at the end of verse 2. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, which means the instruction or the teaching and the word of the Lord shall go forth from Jerusalem. What happens in the latter days? Well, what happens in the latter days is this very thing, these things that are being described in these two verses. So let me give you three things to think about here as we come to these verses and as we look to next week. Three things to think about. Think of this passage in in this way. In these latter days, there is first the business that has been finished, the finished business. Then second, there is the ongoing business, the continuing business. And then third, there is the unfinished business, the business that remains to be finished, okay? Finished business, ongoing business, and unfinished business. What is the finished business? Well, to get what's going on in this passage, particularly this imagery of mountains and hills, It's referred to in verses 2 and then into verse 3. You need to understand something about mountains and hills as they're conceived in the Bible. The Bible has a vocabulary. It has a way of thinking, a way of seeing, a way of understanding. And to, to begin to understand what's going on in these two verses, you need to know some of the significance of the words. Now, mountain makes sense to you. You know what a mountain is. Rocky Mountains. 
You know what hills are. You know what foothills are. But in the Bible, mountains and hills, and this is very significant. In the Bible, mountains and hills were places where the Canaanites would go to worship. They would go up to what is referred to throughout the Old Testament as high places. And when they would get up on those high places, what they would do is offer their sacrifices. They would go up there to worship. They would go up there to meet with their deity or call out to their deity or cry out to their deity or offer sacrifices to their deity. And they would, they would build actually replicas of their deities. They would build poles and statues. And, and again, this is something that um, really isn't pretty, okay? It's really not pretty. Canaanite idolatry is not something that you can talk about in polite company. So, so you know, there's a little parenthetical thing here. Please, if, and again, if you have a question about this, come see me. Don't think for a moment that all religions are the same. That they all are different paths up the same mountain. If you learn a little bit about Canaanite religion, just the example of the worship of Molech, without going into the details surrounding the worship of the Asherah, if you know a little bit about the worship of Molech, you will know that Molech was this big, fierce god with this huge mouth, open mouth, into which worshipers would drop their firstborn children. And at the base of which was a consuming fire. And these things would be on high places. They would be found in valleys as well. But people would go up onto these high places to worship these deities and to offer sacrifices to these deities. You remember when Elijah had his confrontation with the 450 prophets of Baal? Where was he? He was on Mount Carmel. He was on a mountain, remember? He built an altar. He said, call out to your gods. Have fire come down from the heaven. Nothing happened. Cry out a little louder. Maybe your God has gone on a vacation. Maybe he's in a distant place. You see, they would go up to these high places to offer worship and to offer their sacrifices, to engage in these things. And so mountains and hills became symbols of idolatry, became places where worship would take place. And so when you come to this passage, Isaiah chapter 2, here is this mountain. Here is this mountain that rises up above all of the other mountains. It is the Everest of the mountains, except that there is no mountain in the whole range that even begins to be the here of this mountain, this mountain that rises up dwarfs all of the other mountains. It dwarfs the hills. It causes all of them to vanish virtually into insignificance. Now, why is that? Why is it that this mountain is exalted above all the mountains, God's mountain? Well, it's because on this mountain that you find the house of God. 
That's what the text says. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And what is the house of God? Here's this mountain. Here's this house. What is the house? What what happens in a house? People live in a house, right? People dwell in a house. People make that house their own. They, they put things in their houses to, to communicate to other people the things that they value. They'll even, they'll even put little, little plaques outside their door that will say something like, Casa Malone, established, 1978, right? And it identifies that place as your dwelling, your home, your place. That's what a house is. It's a dwelling place. What is the house that is on top of this mountain? You see where this is going? You're beginning to connect the dots. This house is the temple of God. It is the place where the presence of God dwells. And friends, what is it that goes on in that temple? Levitical priests lead the people of God in the worship of God. Levitical priests offer sacrifices to the one true God. And those Levitical priests offering those sacrifices and leading those people in the worship of the one true God bring joy to that people because here in this place, here on this mountain, here in this house, in this temple, real, real reunion takes place. Real reconciliation takes place. Real restoration takes place between a holy God and an unholy people. When was this fulfilled? See, this this mountain, this mountain, so looms above the other mountains that it causes the other mountains to fade into insignificance. There's a a great, if you've seen the movie, The Natural, Robert Redford film, it's about a baseball player, young, amazing baseball player, never been, never been a baseball player like him. He gets, he gets on a train to go try out for a professional team. And the train makes a stop, and there's a guy on the train who is a Babe Ruth-type character. He's the best there's ever been. And there's a woman on that train, and she is fascinated by the best there has ever been. This hitter, this batter, they call him Slugger. Well, Robert Redford, who plays a pitcher, challenges this guy. I'll strike you out on three pitches. So they stop the train. They get off. There's a ball field. Get a baseball pitch. One can't even swing the bat. Misses it. Blows right by him. Swing number, pitch number two. Swings and misses. Pitch number three. Swings and misses. Three pitches. Three strikes. The batter is gone. And there's this great image in this film of this woman who's on the train who is fascinated by the best there has ever been, her gaze shifts from the batter to the pitcher. Robert Redford, stunningly good-looking. See, that's what happens here. And when is this fulfilled? When is the thing that Isaiah talks about completed? 
When does it happen? You know where this is going, don't you? What is it that causes the nations to shift their gaze from what they perceive to be the best there has ever been? What constrains them to turn their attention away from these puny mountains and these small little hills to the hill that is exalted above all of the other hills and mountains? It is the cross. It is the cross, isn't it? What Isaiah sees here is fulfilled, begins to be fulfilled when Jesus, who is the perfect priest, who offers the perfect sacrifice in the perfect mountain, who is himself, he says, the fulfillment of everything that goes on in the temple. He is the temple. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He lives and then he dies on this mountain that separates this mountain from all of the other mountains and causes all of the other mountains to fade into insignificance. When does it happen? It doesn't happen in Bethlehem doesn't happen in Bethlehem. There are authors, folks I read, I'll list their names for you sometime, who find it a bit frustrating that all of the pomp and all of the attention surrounds the incarnation. The incarnation means nothing, is nothing, if the incarnation does not move in the direction of the cross on that mountain where the perfect temple, who is the perfect priest, who offers himself as the perfect sacrifice so that there might be perfect reconciliation between a holy God and a sinful people. If this incarnation doesn't move in that direction, let's pack it up and go home. Keep your poinsettias. They mean nothing. It's this thing that causes this mountain to be exalted above all of the other mountains, dwarfing all pretenders to supremacy. We could spend hours exploring the superiority, the beauty, the wonder of this mountain. But let me just say what we try to say over and over and over again here. All of the religions of the world in one way or another, in one way or another, say, This is what you must do. This is what you must do. This is what you must do to know God, to have peace with God, to find forgiveness with God. This is what you must do. Only Christianity says this is what God has done. This is what God has done so that you might know him, so that you might have peace with him, so that you might know his favor so that you might be reconciled to him, so that you might be forgiven. This is what God has done. All of the other high places in Canaan, you have to take something with you. You've got to have some money. You've got to buy a sacrifice. You've got to to purchase a plane ticket to get to the high place. You have to pay something. There is some cost to you. But on this high place, on this mountain, There is no sacrifice to be purchased because the Father owns the Son and the Father gives 
the Son freely to be a sacrifice for those who need to be forgiven and cleansed. I can't put the contrast any better than how I heard it put recently. And this is just one example, but it's replicated, my friends, in all of the religions of the world. And I don't say this because I dislike people who are Buddhists or Hindus or Muslims or anything else. I love Hindus. I love Buddhists. I love Muslims. So does God. He's collecting them. (laughs) Right? I can't put the contrast any better than this. I heard it recently again. In Islam, Allah says to Muslim mothers, give me your sons to die for me. In Christianity, God says, here is my son to die for you. The gulf could not be wider. And that is what causes this mountain to be exalted above all of the mountains. And that is the finished business, okay? That is the finished business. That's why in Isaiah 40, this wonderful piece that is a part of Messiah, Isaiah 40, verse 9, gets you up to a high place, gets you up to a mountain, right? You know this piece? Why? So that you can proclaim. See, we don't go up to high mountains anymore to offer sacrifices. We go up the high mountains to proclaim the sacrifice that has been made, to declare the sacrifice that has been made. It's finished business. But what's the, un, the ongoing business? What's the ongoing business? Well, that's verse 3, the end of verse 3. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. What's the ongoing business? Here it is. This is it. Jesus is incarnate. Jesus comes into the world. We celebrate this. He lives. He dies. He is raised again. He is exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He does not need to be elected into that position. He rules and reigns over all men and all nations and all things for his glory and for the good of his people. He is doing that right now. And when he ascended, He received, the scriptures tell us, from his father, the promise. And he poured out that promise upon his church. He poured out the spirit upon the church. And that happened at Pentecost. And do you know who was in Jerusalem at Pentecost? People from all over the Roman Empire. Read it in Acts 2. People from all over the Roman Empire. And Acts 2.11 will tell you not only were Jews present, but proselytes were present as well, meaning Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and they had converted. You know, we don't know their stories. It's going to be interesting to find out what their stories are, but I think you can read between the lines. They converted to Judaism out of the bankruptcy of paganism because Judaism promised a conqueror, promised a perfect sacrifice. And they came to Jerusalem for the Passover, to celebrate the Passover. 
And at that particular Passover, the true Passover was offered. And after he suffered and died, he was raised again. And then he ascended into heaven. And then 10 days after his ascension, he poured out his spirit upon the church. The gift the father had promised. And the nations were there. Let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go up to the house of Jacob so that he may teach us his ways. And then what happened? All these folks who came from Bithynia and Parthia and Rome and and Alexandria, all these folks who had flooded into Jerusalem, what did they do after it was all over? They went home. What went with them? The word of the Lord went with them. The word of the Lord. And not just the word inscripturated but the fulfillment of it. The Lord Jesus, the word of God incarnate, went with them back to Alexandria, back to Rome, back to Bithynia, back to Parthia. All these places, it's all fulfilled in the work of Jesus and the ongoing work of the church, right? The nations, you've got these two things going on. You know what? You know what centrifugal force is? That's when things get spun to the outside. That's what you have with a spin cycle in a washing machine. You know what centripetal is? It's the opposite. It's where things move to the center. What you have described in these verses is both things. You got people coming and going. You got centripetal. You got centrifugal. You got people coming to hear the word. You got people going out with the word. And it still goes on today. Still goes on today. It's going on among the nations. It has been for 20 centuries. You are the fulfillment of this. You ever think about that? Anybody of Scottish descent in here? There you go. Anybody of Irish descent? We need more. Anybody of Greek descent? Anybody of Italian descent? Right? Any African Americans? Not to single you out, Beatrice. Right? What's here? The nations. This. The fulfillment of this. And it continues to go on. As people come to the mountain. Coming to what? Coming to the cross. Coming to Jesus. The true mountain. Where the true temple. True priest. True sacrifice. Once and for all have been offered. And we get up on high mountains now. To herald and proclaim that it's done. And we do it among the nations. And the nations continue to stream. And when the nations stream in. They are captivated by this glory. The wonder of this. Captivated by the joy of it. And then they go back out. This has been happening for 20 centuries. Oh, forgot. South America. Colombia. Sorry. Let me tell you there's a deeper thing going on here. Let me conclude with this. This happened literally, physically, materially with real live people in real live places at a real life place and time, and that is Jerusalem at the time of the death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecostal experience that all took place in Jerusalem. But folks, there's a, there's a, there's a deeper, deeper, more wonder filled fulfillment of the thing that is prophesied in Isaiah 2, fulfilled in Acts 2. A deeper and more wonder-filled fulfillment of this prophecy in your experience right here and right now. 
Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. This is simply stunning. This is one of those things that causes you to have chills run up and down your spine. It gives you those little goosebumps. If you think about it, it causes the hair on the back of your neck to stand. Hebrews 12, verse 18. The author of this letter writing to people just like you. Just like you. See, this is where, this is where you got to go back to the magic eye thing. You know? You got to keep looking, friends. You got to keep looking at black words on a white page. You got to keep looking. You can't just walk out of here and say, okay, I did it for another week. It's over. Thank God. Now I can go watch football games. You got to keep looking. Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have, you have not come to what may be touched. Right? You, you've not come to what may be touched or seen or tasted. You've not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast, think of this, think of this. If even a beast touches this most holy place, Mount Sinai, where God descended in smoke and fire and where his voice caused the ground to tremble. If even a beast would touch that mountain, the beast would be destroyed and consumed in the presence of the holy God. Indeed, So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, but, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Not you will, not someday, but my friends, right here, right now, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. And you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who's that? Who are those people? Alan Robertson. That's what you've come to. You've come to the invisible company of angels. You've come to the innumerable host of godly people who've gone before you. You and they together are present in the presence of Jesus, the firstborn of the firstborn from the dead who is at the right hand of his father, ruling and reigning in splendor and in glory. That is where you are. You have gone up to the highest of all places. And the highest of all places has come down to you. And there is an intersection here between Jesus, the King of glory, and all of the angelic host, and the souls of those saints made perfect right here among us. 
and you are among them. And notice, it is not a place of fear. Mount Sinai was a place of fear and dread. This is a place of festivity. The angels are gathered in festal joy. You've come to God. In verse 24, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a far better word than the blood of Abel, the first to die for righteousness, pointing to the one who would die for the unrighteous, that they might be righteous in the presence of their father. Look, folks. There is a whole lot more going on here than you can see. You're gathered up into the presence of the God of glory. To delight in him, to worship him, to taste and see that above every other mountain or hill, every other place where something is worshipped in the place of the one true God, he is supremely good. He is supremely good. So, when we gather, we gather up into that great assembly and the word goes forth. And it's not my word. It's the word of King Jesus, the great singer, the great preacher, the great lover of the nations. It is his word that goes forth from that heavenly place out into this world so that by that word, the nations might be gathered to him. Of which you are examples. So what's the ongoing business? The ongoing business is the business of going up into the heavenly city to hear the word as the word sounds forth and goes out into the nations so that the day will come when the kingdoms of this world will fully, completely, entirely become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever. Man, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. He comes to make his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Joy to you, King Jesus. Be with us as we sing and be with us as we go. And press this word into our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing Joy to the World, number 195.